One of the things I wanted us to think about is what is an appropriate response to situations. So let, let's try a couple of those things. Suppose you are at, at Concert Hall in Chicago and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra has done a fantastic performance. They have really played very, very well and then the concert comes to an end. What would be an appropriate response for those in the audience in response to this superb performance by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra? Well, normally, it's, it's strong, firm applaud. In some cases, you may even have a standing ovation to show your appreciation for the orchestra. I remember, I wasn't there, but I've read about it, a time when uh, Fritz Weiner gave one of his performances and he received a standing ovation for over 35 minutes. That is the congregation, uh, the, the, the audience stood up and for 35 minutes applauded him and the orchestra for their superb job. So, what's the appropriate, what's the appropriate response if they do a very lousy job? Uh, not rotten tomatoes, uh, you forgive them and you pray for them, <laughs> that they get better. Let's, let's think of something else, my, one of my great loves, uh, namely uh, soccer. When two teams are playing very hard and it's the end of the season and it determines championship and somebody scores a goal, what is the right response in that situation? Well, it depends on which country you're in, but one common response is to sing ole, ole, ole. And, and, and that's responding to soccer. If the Queen of England were uh, having, if she was having a, a, a newspaper, a, a news announcement to make, and the newspaper men were, were there, and they're all waiting for her to arrive, and somebody walks in and says, Her Majesty the Queen, and she walks in. What is the appropriate response there? Well, most of them, they would stand up out of respect. And if she was knighting somebody, then they would normally kneel. So there are various ways of responding to various situations. My question this morning is, how should we respond to God? And of course, the Bible describes many responses to God. This morning, I thought we would just look at Psalm 95 and, and focus on this response. It's not the only response, it's only one, but it's a very important one. And it happens to be in the book of Psalms. Psalm 95 is a marvelous work of literature. It's a splendid piece of poetry. Uh, watch with me. What's the first word in verse 1? Come. What's the first word in verse 6? Come. In verse 1, after the word come, we have a series of verbs called, uh, that, that, that begin with let us, let us sing for joy to the Lord, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation, let us come before him with thanksgiving. These are called cohortatives in grammar. Uh, and if you turn to verse 6, come, let us bow down, let us worship, let us kneel, 
three cohortatives. And then in verse 3, verse 3 begins with the word for or because. And verse 7 begins with the word for or because. So looking at it as a piece of poem, it's an invitation, come, exhortation, let us, and explanation, because. So invitation, uh, exhortation, explanation, and then followed by a second uh, invitation, exhortation, explanation. I want us to look first at the first seven verses of this psalm. So what is happening in the first invitation? Four verbs. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Let us extol him with music and song. We are clearly invited to worship God. We are called, we are invited to worship God. And as we look at this worship of God, is it musical? Yes, it is singing. Is it uh, loud or soft? It's loud. Shout aloud. Is, does it have words? Yes, thanksgiving. Does it have music? Yes. Let's extol him with music and song. So that is the first invitation to worship. In the Middle East, you could do all these three things and it still would not be an invitation. There is something going on in the Middle East that is very similar to this, but it's the opposite. It is musical, it is loud, it uses words, but the word for it is dirge. Dirge is a funeral. So, for example, if a person dies and then the family wants to carry the coffin from the home to the cemetery, they walk usually and they carry the coffin on their shoulders. And strangely enough, you can actually hire, you can actually hire professional mourners. They will march in front of the group and will sing out loud musically the virtues of this man. What a great loss. He was kind to his children. What a great loss. He was faithful member of society. What a great loss. He was a godly Christian. What a great loss. And this goes on, and this singing goes on until they get to the cemetery. So what's the difference between this and a dirge? The difference is one thing that I left out. It is in the very first verse. Come, not just let us sing, but let us sing for joy. So the first way to worship God is to sing with joy, loudly, musically, with instruments. I realize that the minute you mention music, there will be a split. Some people like classical music, some people like country and western. I won't tell you in which camp I am, but you'll figure out very, very soon. Uh, some people like loud music, some like soft music. Some like a cappella, some like choir. 
And so, when it comes to music, you have people with strong ideas as to what worship is really like. When I was young, um, my family used to be confused by me. I mean, I remember this conversation. My mom and dad saying to themselves, what's wrong with our son? He likes Bach and Tchaikovsky more than Elvis. How can that be? You know, he's only four years old. He should be rocking and rolling. But he doesn't. Given the choice, he turned to Tchaikovsky. Well, I loved classical music. Do I like country and western? Oh, uh, I'm a charitable man. <laughs> I'm willing to lie and say yes. So he wants us to worship him with rejoicing. That's the key. We worship him with rejoicing. It's not, oh no, it's Sunday morning, I have to go to church. You know, mom, dad, I just want you to know that the minute I turn 18, I'm going to stop. You know, it's not this, it's not that. It is with rejoicing. It is with celebration. It's like, you know, John Philip Sousa, if you know who he is, great March composer, American. So, what God wants to do is to worship him with rejoicing. Stop for a minute. Let's go to verse 6. And let's see the second invitation. How does God want us to worship him now? Let us bow down. I'm reading from the NIV. The NIV says, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Is bowing down musical? No. Does it use words? No. Is it loud? No. It's none of these things. He is describing another style of worship. This kind of worship involves bowing down, kneeling, and in the middle between those two words, there's a very difficult Hebrew word. Even scholars get it wrong sometimes. It's the verb hishtachwe. Hishtachwe means to prostrate yourself on the ground before the great king to prostrate yourself. If I got off here and got down there and laid flat with my face to the ground, that is hishtachwe. So how should we, what should we do here in verse 6? We bow down, we kneel, we prostrate ourselves. These three verbs describe body language. We are using our body to communicate ideas. We all can communicate non-verbally. We can communicate ideas without having to use words. So, for example, applauding is communicating an idea with your body without using words. Standing ovations, you know, the, the you know, any presidential Election, like this, if you remember Nixon, you know, means I won. So he wants us to bow down, kneel, uh, prostrate ourselves. 
what idea are we communicating? Submission and reverence. So he has described two kinds of worship, two ideas of worship, with rejoicing and celebration, with reverence and submission. When you look at this, you will find out some people who say, I prefer a loud form of worship. Others may say, I prefer a quiet form of worship. I would, I would like our worship to be more charismatic. I would like our worship to be more uh, quiet and serious. I remember I was in London in, uh, the day before Christmas visiting my family and we were just touring and we were in Westminster Abbey. And at five o'clock the Abbey closed because it was December the 24th. As we were leaving, I overheard an usher saying that there is going to be an evening service. And so I asked if anybody could come and they said yes. So my cousin and I, both of us believers, decided to attend the evening service. I think it was the most solemn service I had ever heard. But it was fabulous. It was fabulous. But last week in chapel, the choir, the gospel choir was singing and they were all clapping and they were all swinging and I'm a very reserved person. You know, I mean, if I wink, that's, uh, that's too much. I, I am stiff. I, I can't, you know, I can't swing. You know, I, when I was growing up, dancing was not considered intellectual, you know. So I'd rather wanted to be, you know, to listen to Wagner than to listen to Elvis. But... But I was thinking such different styles and all kinds of things in between. God is not saying either worship me with rejoicing or worship me with reverence. He is not saying find which one you like and then do it and ignore the other one. He is saying worship me both ways. Do I find it easy? I'll be honest with you. Do I find it easy to lift up my hands? No, I don't. Do I do it? Yes. Why do I do it? Because God tells me to do it. So even though it's not comforting, uh, even though it's not comfortable, I find myself needing to obey God and to expand the ways I worship God. If I'm not comfortable in a charismatic setting, well, I need to learn how to become comfortable. And if I'm not comfortable in a Church of England setting, I need to learn how to become comfortable. We can't say, well, this is what I like, and so I'm not going to try anything else. We're not given this option. It says, do this and do this. And so we are to worship God with both rejoicing and with reverence. I worry about us sometimes. I, I, I keep thinking, I wonder when it's going to happen. When Ben says, for the next five minutes, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to have total silence. And then I wonder, what will happen then? Will everybody get fidgety? Will everybody become nervous? Will people start coughing? 
Well, I think maybe I'll beat Ben to the punch and for the next five minutes in the <laughs> sermon, I'll say nothing. Just see what you would do. But it is. Let me tell you something else. The Assyrians were very powerful in the ancient Near East, and Assyria invaded Israel uh, four times, actually. One of the things the Assyrians did was when they conquered a people, they would get the king or the general or whoever is the highest-ranking officer in, 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 in the country that they conquered, and they would make that loyalty prostrate himself on the ground in the way it's described in the psalm. And then the Assyrian king would come and put his foot on the neck of the conquered leader. There was no doubt as who won and who lost. They knew who was victorious and who was defeated. We should have a very clear idea in our own minds who is king and who is not. We are not king. We're not even king in a small domain. God is king. And God wants us to kneel and to prostrate ourselves and to acknowledge. God wants us to treat him with respect and reverence. The very same Bible that says, come, let us sing for joy, let us shout aloud. The very same Bible says, the Lord is in, holy, is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent. It is not either or, it is both. And so we rejoice, and then we also revere. But then why should we rejoice or revere? What's the reason for worshiping God to begin with? Let's take a look at verse 3. 3 through 5. That's the reason. It begins with for or because. Do it this way because. Because the Lord is a great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his. He made it. And his hands formed the dry land. If you only look at verse 5, that's enough clue. If the sea is his, if he made the sea and his hands formed the dry land, what does that make God? Creator. He is the creator of the universe. Uh, I will be very honest with you. I'm not an outdoors people. After I see two trees, I'm bored. All trees start to look the same. I would rather be in a museum than in a, you know, in a state park. That's just, that's just the way I am. I'd rather see a painting about trees than a real tree, <laughs> you know. But, but I have a daughter who said, you have grandchildren, they should know you better. You're coming with us to Adler in Chicago. And I was just amazed. And it dawned on me, all these wonderful things that they were trying to teach us about. All that was because God said one sentence, let there be. Just one sentence. I, I, I was stunned. I mean, I was in awe. What a great creator. Well, if you can't go to Adler, maybe you need to take a walk on the beach in the morning and see the sunrise or the sunset. 
And remember, God is the one who did all this. So wherever you find nature, one of the things I did was to take, was to go regularly to uh, zoos to show my children the great variety of animals. I used to think that a dog is a dog, you know, and that's all. Do you know how many kinds of dogs there are? Over 290 dogs, kinds, and that's just one. We haven't started with cats or birds. God is the creator. He is the great king above all the gods. If you don't believe in God, if you believe in several gods, the question is, how do you know you have enough gods? When is your pantheon big enough? At which point do you say, we have all the gods we need, we don't need any more? Well, if you are an agricultural society, you need a god for rain, a god for fertility, a god for the soil, a god for the wind, and so you have all these gods to help you take care of nature. So you end up with a committee working on creation. And those of us, like myself, who's on three committees, because I don't know how to say no to my university, you know, we know what happens in committees. If you're not informed, come talk to me. I do counseling on the side. So they've got five gods trying to take care of the world. So if you happen to have volcanoes, you add an extra god because you've got the god of volcanoes. And if you have deserts, you have another god, and that's the god of the deserts, and God knows where the list stops. But in this case, God does everything all by himself. God, as creator, takes care of every activity in nature. They need ten gods. He only needs himself. That's why he is the great king above all the gods, because in his hands are the depths, depths are low, and the mountain peaks down and up, looking at space, down and up, vertically. The sea is his, he made it, and his hand formed the dry land, sea and dry land, looking at it horizontally. All of space is in God's hand. All of space is in God's hand, and he's the great creator. So why should we worship God? Because God is great, because God is creator, because God is much bigger than anything we can even imagine. But that might make him seem transcendent and far and aloof and over there and not close enough. So let's take a look at verse 6 and 7. How should we worship God now? Come, let us bow down, let us prostrate ourselves, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He's still admitting that God is our maker because he is our God and he's not their God or some other group's God. He is our personal, possessive pronoun, our, our. He is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. If we are the flock and if we are the sheep, what does that make God? The shepherd. And not just any shepherd, the personal shepherd, our shepherd. 
This is not a new idea. If you've been reading in the book of Psalms, by the time you get Psalm 23rd, the Lord is my shepherd. And if you're reading in the Gospels and you get to the Gospel of John, I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. I was reading that this morning, doing my devotionals in John, and so it came up, the passage was, I am the good shepherd. And, uh, and he says he wants to protect us, he wants to take care of us, he wants to feed us, he wants to lead us, he wants to be our good shepherd. I found that myself very, very touched by, God, by, by that passage. I did not grow up in a family where my relationship with my dad was affectionate. We were not. I, I am sad to say that as far as, as I know, and my dad also knows it, because he told me before he passed away, he never said, I love you. He tried to show it, but he never said, I love you. And so it dawned on me that the way to gain his love is to get good grades in school. And that was easy for me. If I had a hard time getting good grades, it would have been the double problem. I can't get grades and I can't please him. But I could please him with good grades. And so it became a relationship of the need to prove myself, the need to perform, the need to show. And one of the major turning points in my spiritual life was reading Romans 8. Who can separate us from the love of God? The great discovery was my heavenly father doesn't love me the same way or shows it differently than my earthly father. I remember reading that for the first time and saying, I don't believe it. It's too good. That, is not, that has not been my experience. But the passage concludes with, who can separate us from the love of God? And the answer is nobody. We cannot be separated from the love of God. And it dawned on me that that is the love that he, the good shepherd, has for his flock. God loves us because he's the good shepherd, not the evil shepherd, not the indifferent shepherd, but the good shepherd. And now the psalmist is saying, we worship him with rejoicing because he's the great creator. We worship him with reverence because he is our shepherd. And we are the flock of his pasture, the, uh, the sheep of his pasture, the flock of his hand. Well, this is such a wonderful note, but regrettably it goes on to the next half. And the next half, in a nutshell, is a warning. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And then an example in history from people who hardened their hearts. I was trying to think to myself, have I ever experienced a hardened heart? Did I ever in my life think that my heart was so hardened that I couldn't sense I couldn't feel anymore, and it, I did. I'll, I'll share that experience with you. In 1969, I was trained to, be a, to go as a medic to Vietnam. 
So we had to learn how to take care of wounds, collapsed lungs, broken legs, uh, shattered jaws, all of these things. And to help us, obviously they couldn't do it with real people, so they showed us movies of people with collapsed lungs, films, educational films with broken legs. I remember the first time I did that, I, I passed out, I fainted. And, and the sergeant says, come on, Masuh, we don't have time to faint. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I'm a sensitive person, you know, these things. And he said, well, you see it 15 times. Don't, not KP, Kitchen Police, but your punishment is see it 15 times. So all of us who just felt weak and uh, dizzy sat and watched the same thing again and again and again and again. After the 15th time, it didn't bother me anymore. I realized that something inside me had died and that seeing someone with a broken leg didn't bother me. Well, it's good if you're a medic because you have to work on them. But in human relationships, it's not good. And here he's saying, don't harden your hearts. And the lesson from history is, of course, Moses' generation that refused to enter the promised land. So it didn't matter what God did to prove that he is their God, that he is the good shepherd. They kept rejecting him. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, verse 7, verse 8. Don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert. Your fathers tested and tried me. That's bad enough. Even though they had seen what I did for them. Ten plagues, parting of the Red Sea, and they still didn't believe in God. So his response is, for 40 years I was angry with that generation and they did not enter my promised land. I want you to go to the warning. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Can you hire people to sing hymns but not mean it? Can you hire professional musicians to sing but not mean it? Yes. Can you hire people who are willing to kneel? Yes. I remember in the movie, The Greatest Story Ever Told, the Roman centurion who is presiding over the crucifixion of Jesus, they hired the most strong person for that. I mean, they really missed the point. That soldier was John Wayne. So with his Texan cowboy accent, he says, surely this man was the son of God. I said, oh, come on, hire somebody who is Italian, who could, you know, who, or Jewish, or somebody, or Roman, you know. Juan, John Wayne, like this is a cowboy movie. Does John Wayne believe in Jesus? I don't know. If I see him in heaven, I'll, I'll know the answer then. Did they hire him because he believed in Jesus? I don't know. Why did they hire him? Because they paid him. It is possible to do things externally. It is possible to do things externally and not be sincere, not to be genuine. That is what the word hypocrisy means. Hypocrisy means to, to act on a stage. 
So if I'm in a play, an Agatha Christie play, and somebody shoots the, one of the characters, you don't call 911 and say, you know, I just witnessed with my own eyes. It's just a play. It doesn't mean anything. What he wants is the attitude of the hearts. Don't harden your hearts. He wants the attitude of our hearts. And then he gives us a warning. They hardened their hearts. They got themselves into trouble. Don't harden your hearts. With that implied warning, you'll get yourself into some trouble, some punishment with God. So what is God trying to teach us through all of this? Number one, there is more than one style of worship. Don't be stuck on the music you like and nobody else, or uh, and not others. Don't say, you can only worship God this way. We can't worship God this way. We worship God with rejoicing and we worship with reverence. There are two styles of worship. Secondly, worship is always related to the nature of God, either as God who is transcendent, creator, or eminent, shepherd. But worship is based on God's character. Thirdly, worship must be sincere from the heart. And fourthly, do not abuse worship. God is not a fool. He knows whether it's a put on or not. He knows whether we're acting or whether we are real. So there are two styles of worship. Worship is at least two styles of worship. We're only reading one psalm. There are 150 psalms in the book. We're only looking at one. It's not the Alpha and Omega of worship in the Bible. It's only one. But it is saying, this one is saying, there are, two, there are various styles of worship. Worship is related to knowing God. And so the more we know God, the better we become at worshiping him. Worship must be from the heart. And don't abuse worship. So that would be the right way to respond to God as we encounter him. Let me pray. Lord Father, thank you for these dear brothers and sisters. For those of you, uh, for those of us who know you, Lord, may we continue to grow in loving you and appreciating you, worshiping you, revering you, rejoicing in you. We ask you that, Father. For those who don't know you or who are running away, backsliding from you, may you apprehend them and let them show, see what a great God you are, the good shepherd who would take care of his flock. Father, we commit ourselves and our lives and our problems and our needs and everything. We commit our lives to you because you are the only one that we have. But we are delighted for you to rule over our lives as king and as shepherd and as creator. I pray this, Father, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.